dare great things for Christ. Christ calls us to dare great things. In the marketplace, as well as in the mission field, there has never been a time like the present for the spirit of the Catholic entrepreneur. Now is the time for men and women of great courage and great vision to engage our church and our culture. Now is the time to dare great things. And here is your host as we dare great things, Father Nathan Cromley, the president and founder of the St. John Institute. Let's face it, leadership is hard. As soon as we start to lead, we encounter a whole host of challenges and sacrifices that we never had to face before. And yet, for everything daunting about it, leadership also presents a unique blessing to us. By persevering through the challenges and continuing to do the mission that Christ has given us, we grow in holiness and in charity. This is the positive message that Pope Gregory the Great puts forth in his second book of his Rule for Shepherds, and his wisdom from more than a thousand years ago continues today. Hi, everybody. I'm so glad to have this chance to go deeper with you in the Rule of Shepherds written by Pope Gregory the Great 1,500 years ago. Can you believe it? This is a document that just never grows old, like so much of the wisdom of the ancients. This document continues to teach us today. And I think it's kind of astounding because many of us tend to write off the past, especially 1,500 years ago, as if these people had no civilization or no sense of education. We're kind of uh, filled with a sense of progress, a very modern notion of progress that puts the past as something almost irrelevant to us, as if these people have nothing to say. And yet it's just the opposite. In fact, the wisdom of the ancients in many ways surpasses the wisdom of modernity. And in any case, we are just like them in that the human mind ponders the deep questions of existence today, just like they pondered the deep questions of existence 1500 years ago. How much do we really think changed of the human experience? I mean, our technology changes, the way we speak changes, the way we dress changes. Those are all on the superficial level. I mean, the human heart remains the same. And that's why we can connect and we need to connect with the thoughts of antiquity because these folks in antiquity are just like us today, strapped and confronted with many fundamental problems. And the answers that they give can be refreshing for us today. And so this is why we're studying St. Gregory the Great. He, 1,500 years ago, this man was an abbot of a monastery. So he had all of the religious life and prayer and the wisdom of those who dedicate themselves to religious life. But he also had the practical experience of having to organize the life of monks in that prayer, preserve that life amidst all of the, the temptations and the distractions of the world. And he was so good at it that they named him the Pope. And the name of the Pope at a time of incredible turmoil and stress, conflict, wars, uh, invasions, jealousies, and he had to face it all. And as he faced it, he wrote down a guideline for those who would accept the office to rule in the place of Christ. So these people that he's writing for are intended to be the bishops of the Catholic Church uh, in his day, but it's something that transcends the episcopacy. This is a, a message that we can relate to ourselves in our businesses and in our families because the human heart faced with the challenge of leadership remains the same 
1,500 years ago and 1,500 years from now. And so the wisdom of Gregory the Great can really be a guide for us. So as we begin this, uh, we want to take a look here at book two. There's four books in this one. So they, they divide one work into four books and then each book into chapters. And so I want to focus in chapter by chapter. We're going to do book two here, chapters one and two, and just combine them because they have the similar message and, and, and talk about them. So let's bow our heads and pray for God's blessing. In the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Dear God, we ask you to bless us as we endeavor to seek wisdom and understanding from Pope St. Gregory the Great, from you, from your holy word. Send us your Holy Spirit. Grant us to know the truth and to put it into practice in our daily lives. We make this prayer in the sweet name of Jesus. Amen. St. John, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. First of all, let's start, take a look at what he's, he's talking about. He focuses in on the exaltation here in chapter one of the role of the leader. And he basically, his message is very simple. Since your role is exalted, so your life has to be exemplary. There's a bond here between the exaltation of your reputation on the outside and the authenticity of your life on the inside. And he warns that you must not break the two and act on the outside in the eyes of others as though you're worthy of respect when in fact on the inside you demonstrate that you're not. And this is a challenge for all of us. It's a fundamental challenge. It's what makes a lot of people in humility not even want to lead because they say to themselves, who am I to step forward? Right? Who am I to stand in front of my peers, my family, my friends, and say that I know the way and that they should follow me. Right? Out of humility, we say, I've got many sins in my past. I've got many problems. I've got many things that have discounted my ability of, to exert any kind of moral authority over anybody. And so therefore, I'm just not going to do it. And we sit back and, you know, but like, let me just say a word to that. Because if you do that, it's right. You're on one hand, completely innocent. You get to win finally in your life. You're able to say, when the offer came to me to dare something great, I desisted in the humble recognition of my unworthiness. And in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of your friends, you'll be looked upon as someone with outward humility. But let me confront you about that. Because if we were to admit to, into leadership, everybody who is worthy of leading, we would have no one there. Not any of us is, stands innocent before God. Go back and read Romans 2, Romans 3, Romans 4. You're going to find an outline of the universality of sin and the gravity of sin in our world, a sin that afflicts all of us and that makes all of us have a history and baggage and mistakes in our past. And if you say to yourself, well, I have to be perfect in order to lead, and therefore I'm not going to lead not being perfect, you sound innocent, but I'm going to confront you because two things have happened. First of all, you have not believed in the power of Jesus Christ who can forgive you, and therefore you stand outside of his saving grace, the grace that is shown to wretches and sinners and those who don't deserve it, because his grace is that wonderful and marvelous. And those who dare to receive it stand again and they rise from the dead and they give glory to God in their lives. And the second thing that's happening here is that you've lost complete sense 
of the impact that your life has over everybody who needs you to give them the best that you can. I mean, if you don't witness to your children and you don't witness to your spouses, guess what? Someone else is. And the witness that they're giving, they don't even try to make it good. The only thing necessary for good to triumph in this world is for good men to do nothing. And when you decide that you're not going to do anything because of any reason that you want, you end up allowing someone else to influence this world and to bring this world down. And you can't sit there and tell me that out of humility, when you're a son of God, forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, the only thing Jesus Christ wanted from us is that we accept him as our savior and we allow him to redeem us and show us his immense mercy. That's all he's asked of us. And yet we want to desist and say, you know what, Jesus, I, I'm not worthy of it. I'm not worthy of the leadership. I don't want to be a hypocrite. I'm like, tell that to St. Paul. Tell that to St. Augustine. Tell that to every single saint who's walked the earth because a saint is not a saint because of their perfection. A saint is a saint because of his grace and the humility that they had to receive it and to receive it so deeply that they responded to it by a life poured out in charity and in acts of leadership over this world. Our problem again is not that we don't have the perfect people to lead. Our problem is that we don't have the saints to lead. And that's why you're here. I want to raise up the saints to lead. I want the saints to depend upon Jesus as their savior. And so the very first thing I want you to do is get rid of that thinking that's in your minds that says that somehow or other, because of your past, you cannot lead today. I mean, that's just, your past is there and your past is dreadful and it is what it is, but your future is written on the palm of the hand of the savior, which was pierced for you upon the cross and shed his blood and wrote your name therein that for henceforth, your greatness be linked to his mercy. And so now it's for us to stand and to claim that grace and to act boldly. This is Father Nathan. Are you thinking of starting your own business or even better, thinking of starting your own ministry of some sort? As we know, success is not going to be determined solely upon spirituality. It also needs training, networking, understanding, and true leadership. This is why we started the St. John Leadership Institute in Denver, Colorado. Join our class this fall and start your business or your ministry on the right foot. Find out more on our website, stjohnleadershipinstitute.org. So in chapter one of the second book of the rule of pastors that Pope St. Gregory the Great writes here, he begins to say, I mean, the first sentence is quite a challenge. He's like, all right, the conduct of a prelate ought so far to transcend the conduct of the people as the life of a shepherd is wont to exalt him above the flock. In other words, he's like saying, as your title exalts someone, you above those whom you lead, so your conduct also must follow. It would be a sad thing if you had the title of someone in charge of the company, someone in charge of your team, someone entrusted with immense responsibility, but your conduct was that of a juvenile or an irresponsible person. And, and you see, like right away, I can see you kind of wincing because you say to yourself, I know. So why would anyone want that? And I'll tell you why. It's because thanks to that challenge, you become better. As the fact is, if we didn't accept that the, the role of challenge to force us into excellence, most of us would never climb the ladder to be there. 
Instead, we'd find a million excuses to not be excellent, to stay in mediocrity. But when you've harnessed the, the heavy yoke of an excellent position in our world, of a judge, of a lawyer, I mean, of a doctor, I'm a physician, holy cow, the, the leaders and the, the CEOs, the C-suite executives, you people are amazing what you're doing for our world. And, and that, that's a heavy yoke. And so on the other hand, St. Gregory sits there and looks at you and says, and now you need to act like it too. And you say, oh my gosh, this is just too much of a burden. I'm like, no, it's not. It's actually being prudent because now you get to use that very same burden that you feel to become more excellent, to step into a position and an attitude that is actually more beneficial for this world than your multiple protestations of inadequacy. And so he goes on to say, he says, for one whose estimation is such that the people are called his flock is bound anxiously to consider what great necessity is laid upon him to maintain rectitude. It is necessary then that in thought he should be pure, in action, chief, discreet in keeping silence, profitable in speech, a near neighbor to everyone in sympathy, exalted above all in contemplation, a familiar friend of good livers through humility, unbending against the vices of evildoers through zeal for righteousness, not relaxing in his care for what is inward from being occupied in outward things, nor neglecting to provide for outward things in his solicitude for what is inward. All right, so that's a beautiful line there. There's a lot that's in that. And in all of it, it comes down to the same thing. He says to, he's saying to us, the excellence of the outer position needs must be matched by the excellence of the inward person. I think of this in terms also of wealth, because many of you are gifted with a lot of resources. You are wealthy people. You have money. And what do you do with that? I mean, it's easy to say, well, the Bible condemns me, God condemns me, and so I don't really know where I find to myself in the church. And I have to say, that's just not true. If you go in the Bible, for example, you find wealthy people bringing their wealth to the service of God. I'm thinking, for example, of St. Barnabas, who sold lands, his lands that he owned in Cyprus, and brought the money to the feet of the apostles and gave it to the apostles as a gift. It was so encouraging that they called him the son of encouragement. Or I think of the three wise men who brought Jesus gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Aren't we glad that they did? It enabled the Holy Family to live during the time in Egypt because Joseph had left his tools back in Nazareth. And so there he found himself in Bethlehem, sent to Egypt without any tools. Why did he live on? Well, they had the gold from the... You think about the fine perfume that Mary Magdalene poured upon the feet of Christ worth 300 days wages. When you think about that and you tie up all the Sabbath days plus the feast days, 300 days wages, that means a working year's salary. She put an entire salary of a year upon the feet of Christ and he received the anointment. And he let her give this to me because it was precious to him. And that's not even to talk about the group of women who followed Jesus and who helped him out of his means. Or St. Lydia, who offered her house to St. Paul and his three companions so that they could evangelize for a long period of time, giving him hospitality, feeding him and his companions. I mean, you know, there's a, a, a role here for those who have wealth. The danger with wealth is simply that it can crush the spirit. It can become too much for you. 
St. Paul knew what he was talking about when in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, he says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And notice, nowhere does it say there, St. Paul and St. Paul, that the rich are supposed to suddenly become poor. No, it's instead, though, that the rich have to not put their hope in their wealth, meaning that there's a spiritual journey that you have to undergo, you who have wealth and resources, that is exigent. And it means to place continual emphasis, and I would even say a commensurate emphasis, on the spiritual. If you don't grow in your devotion to God and in your faith in a way commensurate with, the, with your wealth, your wealth will drown you. You have to be able, he says, to have the firm hope for the life that is to come and the true life instead of this life which is just abundant around you which is earthly and material. So it's not that it's bad. It's just that if you're not careful, you're going to miss the boat because you have such a heavy amount of baggage to carry with you. I think it's almost like saying that if you're going to have a lot in terms of this world, you need to have as much on the inside in terms of excellence, faith, hope, and love. So the challenge here is not to say that you should despair of eternal salvation, but rather that through the exercise of your detachment and your proper use of that wealth and resources, you can actually be sanctified and come to a real faith and a real hope that is in God. But you have to take that journey. And so in all of it, it's the same idea. Leadership gives us title. Leadership gives us respect. Leadership gives us a certain amount of esteem in the eyes of men. Well, let us merit that. Let's live so as to be deserving of the honor we receive. This is Father Nathan. I know that there are many ways to learn leadership, and that there's many great methods out there that are even put forth by Catholics. But here at the St. John Leadership Institute, we actually have a unique way of forming leaders. It's called Audeo. That's Latin for I dare. At our campus in Denver, Catholics can learn an authentically Catholic way to become a leader. Check us out on our website, stjohnleadershipinstitute.org. So in chapter two of the second book of St. Gregory the Great's treatise on the rule of shepherds, he goes on to focus in specifically on the virtue of purity. And I think this is an amazing virtue to take a look at. Why would he start with purity of thought? Right? And that's what he does. He has a whole chapter here, chapter two, saying, first chapter is to say, hey, if you have an excellence in the eyes of the world, then your conduct needs to be the same. And I, I think that this challenge to leadership is a blessing because, yeah, it is a, a difficulty to stand in front of the world and, and hold the position of excellence because then you do have to live at a higher standard. You have to live in accord with the outer excellence that is given to you by those who are around you. And so I, but I guess I'd just like to encourage you to stop complaining about it, <laughs> you know, and instead to say, what an, what an advantage. That pressure that's constantly on me is actually going to forge me 
to be great, to be truly worthy of the excellence that people bestow on me because of my position. And so I need to therefore watch how I live and how I act. And then the very first place that he talks about, he talks about the purity of our thoughts. This is almost a, a way of speaking that's gone out of style today. People almost don't even want to hear the talk anymore about purity and purity of thoughts because our thoughts today can be just so assailed by so much impurity and so many things that are just evil that can come upon us through all of the images that are around us and the lifestyle around us. But I'm not quite sure it was any easier at the time of Gregory. I'm not quite sure when you look at the way that the ancients lived or even examples from our own American history of the Wild West and the way that things were in an underdeveloped place, it seems to be that the temptations of the flesh are always there. And it's a leader who has to admit that that struggle is important. The worst thing you could do is simply say, wow, there is absolutely no worries there. My thoughts aren't important. No one's going to see them anyway. And the reason for that is that your thoughts are going to become your actions. If you can control the way that you think, you can control the way that you act. And if you're struggling with all kinds of actions that are self-absorbed or manipulative or domineering of others, go back and look at your thoughts and say to yourself, well, gosh, if I'm struggling there, maybe it's because in my own mind, I don't have that purity of receiving the other person as they are, letting them be who they are, appreciating them for who they are. As we think, so we act. It's a simple law. Gregory the Great writes it beautifully. He says, he's speaking here about temptations, and he says, these things, however, cannot but knock at the ruler's mind, but it is necessary to make haste to overcome them by resistance, lest the vice which tempts by suggestion should subdue by the softness of delight, and this being tardily expelled from the mind, should slay by the sword of consent. It's a beautifully poetic sentence. And the way he breaks it down is to say that you don't get to saying yes to bad actions in whatever form they are, from violent actions to jealous actions to comp competitive actions to slander, whatever that action is, we don't just say yes to it immediately. There's a process that happens. We say yes to something that we hang on to. And we hang on to something which is delightful in some way or the other to us, even if it's an illicit way, a way that's not good. But if we take delight in it and we will hang on to it, and if we hang on to something delightful, eventually we'll consent to it. And so he says, what you need to do instead is when you find something delightful, which is in fact evil or wrong, you need to resist that thought. You need to resist that feeling and that emotion and expel it from your mind. Because in the end, you cannot afford to have that fall happen. You, can, you are in charge of people. They need you to think of them in the proper light with a due respect and the, the, the purity that comes with it. And so, yes, you can think here, of course, of fleshly temptations, but it's more than just that. It's not just fleshly temptations. There's a, a type of justice, for example, in a person's reputation that we have to uphold. A type of respect in the working environment that resists against toxicity and, and abusive personalities that we have to defend. We have all kinds of roles as a leader of an organization that people count on us to do. I remember recently listening to a talk by Jeff Bezos, uh, the founder of Amazon. 
And he said, and I think is an accurate statement of whatever opinion you might have of Amazon or his particular journey. He said this, he said, you as senior executives in the business world are not paid to make 130 decisions a day. You're paid to make at most three good decisions a day. And then he went on to quote Warren Buffett. And he said, Warren Buffett says sometimes he only makes three good decisions in a week, meaning that the weight of the leader's decisions are so great that they have to be few in number for him to be able to make them well. And his job is to make them well. Well, to do that, you have to have a, a focus of mind and of intention that's disciplined, that's pure. And allowing ourselves to drift off into all kinds of strange thinking in any way, it reduces that ability for us to maintain the responsibility of our position in the way it was. So he speaks here, he gives an example about Aaron uh, in, the, in the Old Testament having on his chest this breastplate, right? We, we've heard about that. Well, the breastplate had two parts to it, two hard like bookends that were pressing on each other and pressing on what was contained in the middle. And those two hard bookends, he's like, that he says is the discipline of thought that we need to have, this type of rigor in, of life. And I agree that this is the challenge. But then I want us to push further and say, and it's more than a challenge, it's an incredible blessing. If it weren't for the responsibilities that we bear, we would be lesser quality human beings. And thanks to bearing them, and thanks to the idea of conforming your inner life with your outward dignity, we can rise. And the challenge of leadership, when you get right down to it, is a challenge to constantly rise, to constantly be better, to be in truth the leader that we say we are in, in the eyes of others by our titles. And the, or to be in truth the great man or great woman that our wealth says that we are by our possessions. Folks, I just really want you to, to remember that when Jesus called you to leadership, he called you to a terrific grace, a sharing in his own life. He wants you to know the greater things, the life of the spirit, the life that he has with him. He didn't call you to leadership in order to condemn you or call you to leadership to watch you fail. He called you to leadership because he knew that by leading, you would be changed and transformed, humbled and transformed by his love. And this challenge that he gives you, when accepted out of love and met with courage, becomes the doorway to heaven and to a relationship of deeper love with him. Dare great things for Christ. Share your feedback with Father Nathan. Send us an email at info at stjohninstitute.org. That's info at stjohninstitute.org. And don't forget to subscribe to premium video content to form, unite, and inspire you at Eagle Eye Pro on our website, eagleeyeministries.org. That's eagleeyeministries.org.